You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Programming and Social Media Associate at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. On behalf of the Pratt Library, I'd like to thank you for joining us at the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped and welcome you to a special presentation of Writer's Live. Today, we're excited to have Chris Format share his new novel, Saving Washington, The Forgotten Story of the Maryland 400 and the Battle of Brooklyn. On a marshy Brooklyn battlefield on August 27, 1776, 400 young men from Baltimore, Maryland, assembled to do battle against a vastly superior British army. Had it not been for their courage and sacrifice, Washington would have been captured and the revolution would have ended six weeks after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This monumental yet forgotten battle, which was ultimately the saving grace of the American Revolution, was fought by men aged 14 to 19 years old. The novel follows young Joshua Bolton and his childhood friend Ben Wright, a freed black man, as they witness British tyranny firsthand, become enraptured by the cause, and ultimately enlist to defend their new nation in a battle that galvanized the American nation on the eve of its birth. A Baltimore native, Chris Foreman, is a, stu- is a student of history, former president of a multi-billion dollar global business, and now a tech CEO. His first novel, Bright Midnight, was dubbed the Da Vinci Code for rock and roll fans. So, without any further ado, please give a warm welcome to Chris Foreman. You can set up this slide. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Maryland 400? Don't okay, we... oh, okay. okay, a little moment in America. Are hear hmm. A call to arms. Patriots betrayed by loyalist spies. If not for 400 brave young soldiers from Maryland, England would have crushed the Continental Army, ending America's revolution before it began. Saving Washington masterfully brings the Battle of Brooklyn to life through the eyes of two young men, Joshua Bolton, son of a Baltimore merchant, and his friend, Benjamin Wright, a free black man. A story of courage and camaraderie, romance and treachery, survival and sacrifice. 400 citizens against the world's greatest military. Saving Washington, the new novel from Chris Foreman. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Who do you think did the voice? Sounds like Morgan Freeman or something. Sounds like Morgan Freeman. It's a Morgan Freeman knockoff. (laughs) But um, this is unusual for me because usually we haven't really done much promotion and, uh, and I haven't had many events in the Baltimore area, but um, usually it's up in New York, and when I ask them if anybody's heard of the Maryland 400, I may get one. So this is, so I'm playing to a home crowd here, so you guys are all, so, you, so I'll, I'll apologize in advance for those of you that have read the book or for those of you that are about to read the book. Please go to the author of notes at the end because I describe what I had to conflate. This is a historic fiction, so I've taken some liberties um, people are um, uh, 
the main characters are all fictional, but all the military on both sides, the locations, the battles, everything else is real. <laughs> so, um, well, you all know about it, but about four and a half years ago, five years ago, I didn't know anything about it. And I happened to stumble across a little one-paragraph announcement in the, I think it was about, Cindy, about five years ago? Yeah. I was finishing up another book, and we were going to go into editing on it. And I was actually working on a cyber thriller, and I saw this little one-page um, announcement in the Baltimore Sun, I mean, one-paragraph announcement in the Baltimore Sun that um, was describing a wreath-laying ceremony at Prospect Park, Brooklyn. And it was going to take place on August 27th, um, and it was the anniversary of an event that took place, uh, of a battle that took place on August 27, 1776. And it was honoring the heroism and bravery of this Maryland regiment. And that really wasn't ca what caught my eye. What caught my eye was the caption that said the Maryland 400 who saved America. I never heard of these guys. You know, and I asked everybody, I asked everybody I knew in, in Baltimore, no one had ever heard of these guys. You know, I asked my kids who live up around Prospect Park, they had never heard so I did what any of you guys would do, and I Googled it. So I started Googling it, and all of a sudden, I start seeing bits and pieces, a lot of contradictory information, um, a lot of falsehoods that have been, uh, that have been continued for, for quite a while. But um, this, this unbelievable story of bravery and heroism just was illuminating. And the more I got into it, and I'm not a history writer, I'm not a historical fiction writer, I like to write thrillers and mysteries, so I never really, wasn't my thing. But what I, as I got more and more into it, I said, this is an unbelievable story. And then I started to jot down a few ideas about it and started to, to and I knew I needed some help because there wasn't much information available. I bought every book that I could. I, uh, you know, think back four or five years ago, there was really nothing out there, you know, about it. And I was um, uh, sort of out of desperation. A friend of mine introduced me to the chief historian at the Army War College up in Carlisle. So I went up there to meet with them. Cindy and I went up there to meet with them. So I asked for their help, and the commandant was there, and so we're talking about this, and I'm describing this story, and the commandant had just come from, he had been leading the troops in Afghanistan at the time. So this was, you know, um, being um, the commandant of the Army War College is sort of a charity retirement job, you know, for uh, the military. So I'm describing this story, and he keeps turning to the chief historian and saying, is this true? Is this, is this, I've never heard of this before. And he goes, yeah, I mean, Chris is a writer, so he's sensationalizing it, but it's not it. And, um, and, um, and I said, General, you know that I think these may be the most um, uh, important, yet most forgotten citizen soldiers in the history of the United States. Think of the time. This took place six weeks after the signing <coughs> of the Declaration of Independence. And I said, you know what this, and he goes, yeah, I agree. I've never heard of this. I've, you know, we should, it's something that should be celebrated. And I said, General, you know what the saddest part of this is? They're scattered, their remains are scattered in unmarked graves under the streets of Brooklyn. And he said, Chris, whatever you want. You know, so, so they opened up, we got a lot of support on this book from the Army War College, um, you know, from West Point, from a number of the historical societies. It just sort of fed, they gave me information, uh, archives, maps, letters, um, that, uh, that gave me some background 
to put this together. In fact, the reason that, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you more about this later, the reason I have a young African-American as one of the leads is that they directed me, uh, unlike anything I had read and anything that, was, that, that I could find out, they, they directed me to pension records and I found that there were at least three African-Americans who were part of the Maryland, the initial Maryland militia, because a Maryland regiment, because the regiment was made up of militias from Frederick, from Baltimore, and from Annapolis. And so three that had lived long enough to collect a pension 10 or 15 years afterwards. I don't know what, I don't know how many African-Americans fought in it. I do know that many of them fought in substitution for someone whose, then, whose name then went on the roster. Um, but I decided at that point that I wanted to make one of the lead characters African-American and sort of, and sort of expose that aspect of it. So I had never heard anything about it. So I start going through this, and, um, uh, and a, a story begins to be put together. That, um, and, and I started to go through, but there just was a paltry amount of facts. And the best descriptions were coming either from the British side or from a a copy of a, of a manuscript, a book that's way out of print that was printed about 100 years after the event that I got access to through the Army. And, um, and that gave me some, a little bit more insight. That was probably the best, uh, the best thing that, uh, that I could find. We got some help after the fact from the Maryland archivist, Owen Laurie, who has a project called Maryland, Finding the Maryland 400. And so he was very helpful too, and we've done some presentations together. So what I want to do is kind of take you back. I want to take you back to what, to what happened and then, and then what happened with the Maryland 400 and then what's happened since we, I wrote the story and it's come out. So, let me, uh, so when I Googled this, when I Googled it, I hit images and the first thing that come up was this. Now, any of you have been to Prospect Park, probably seen it. It's kind of buried in the woods there. And this is a monument from the Sons of the American Revolution that was dedicated about 100 years after the event to the Maryland 400, who saved the American army. I thought, this is pretty cool. We've actually gone up and seen it. And, and um, it is kind of buried. And you, can, you can't read the inscription, but it's from the Sons of the American Revolution. The interesting part is when you walk around behind it, and this is what it said. <coughs> Good God, what brave fellows I must lose that day. I must this day lose George Washington. And when he observed the bravery at the time, he was in tears. And so, you know, that's all I had to see, and I saw I, I gotta I gotta go deeper into this and tell this story. So just to, I'm gonna let me set the stage for you. The British had been earlier in the year. I think it was in the, in the uh, spring, you know, late winter, spring. The British had been pushed out of New England, okay? And they had been humiliated. Washington had uh, been sent up there to basically to, to coordinate the pieces of what became the Continental Army, and they pushed the British out of New England, okay? King George was pissed off, you know. Parliament was royally upset, and so they budgeted and then deployed at the beginning of the summer in late spring, they deployed the largest armada in the history of the world. 475 boats, 30,000 British regulars, thousands of seamen, and thousands of Hessians that were rumored to be paid by body count. So they, they sent them over 
to converge on, uh, on um, New York Harbor, on the East River, and block their intent was a couple fold. First, to block the uh, uh, East River, block the New York Harbor, cut off the economic engine of the colonies, capture Washington, you know, hang him, capture his, his uh, chief lieutenants, hang them, destroy the Continental Army, and then go and occupy the major cities in the colonies and restore what they thought was normalcy. So they had had it. This was going to be, been, you know, those of you that are, that are um, uh, you know, history buffs, you know that it, the Revolutionary War had sort of a rolling start. It started a couple of years back. And so by the time the, declara the, that the Declaration of Independence was executed and, um, and promulgated, we had been in this for a couple of years. So the British were royally upset. They wanted to end it. Uh, so they sent over this massive, tr this massive armada, the largest in the history of the world. And they also didn't want to take any chances. So they, they, so, so uh, leading the army and the navy were a relative who's who of um, of the British military and naval power. The two, the two Howe brothers, um, uh, one was a general, one was an admiral. They they wrote um, their tactics and strategies were studied at military schools around the world at the time. So these were like I I, I don't know who what the American equivalent would be. But these were the most studied and, um, and um, uh, known military leaders in the world at the time. Henry Clinton, you probably know him, they wanted to send over their most, their most ruthless military leader. Charles Cornwallis, who wasn't, and then Thomas Gates. So these were, these were a few of the guys, but they, had, they, they not only were committing all of their, um, their uh, military might and weaponry, they were... Com they were uh, uh, committing their most gifted tacticians and strategists. So they wanted to end this thing once and for all. On the American side, it was a little bit different because we weren't that uh, we weren't that prepared. And this is this is part of the Maryland the Maryland side of it that came up the coast. You had George Washington had some military training. Some of them had some military training, but nothing like what they were facing. You know, and they learned very early, and they learned after this battle that they weren't going to fight a Napoleonic type of war again. Um, we had uh, William Smallwood, you know, big name in Maryland, who actually was not at the uh, was not at the battle. He had observed it, but he was not at the battle. Mordecai Gist, you know, who uh, is really the hero. Mordecai Gist had started, I think it was in 1775. Correct me if I'm wrong something called the Baltimore Cadets. Maryland was really not that influenced by what was going on in New England at the time, but um, he formed a group of about 75 or 80 young merchants' kids called the Baltimore Cadets, and uh, in sympathy to what was going on in New England, and some of them went up and fought alongside uh, the Patriots up in New England, some of them went down to Charleston uh, to fight alongside the Patriots there. But um, he was... To call him a liberty and freedom fanatic is an understatement. He was such a fanatic that he named his two sons independent and states. No lie. Independent and states. So this guy was a fanatic. And then you had a guy named um, uh, William Alexander, who uh, was of Scottish lineage. It was questionable whether he bought his lordship or whether he or whether he, um, it was actually his lineage. 
but he was from um, Basking Ridge, New Jersey. And his claim to fame was that he had, he was a good friend of George Washington. George Washington wa walked his daughter down the aisle. He had very little military training, if any. None of these guys had a, a whole lot of training. Um, but his claim to fame was he had the only vineyard in the colonies. So at the time, they thought that Bergen County would become kind of the Napa Valley of America, but it didn't happen that way. And then Sergeant Gassaway Watkins, who was sort of a larger-than-life, he's buried in Maryland. You know, we had one person that's read the book that actually uh, made a monument to him as part of this scout project. Gassaway Watkins, one of these larger-than-life, you know, guys that uh, 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 infantry leader, and um, as soon as I came across his name, I knew I had to find a place for him in the story, just because of the name Gasway. So, I had, so, so this is what this is what was lead, leading the Maryland contingent um, uh, on the Continental Army side. So, um, they had a call to arms. The regiments were were established, and the Southern regiments, um, uh, Maryland and Virginia, um, uh, mustered in Annapolis. And that's July 10th, 1776. This is a famous painting. So they mustered in Annapolis to head up the coast. They, whoops. They converged with the regiments coming down from New England. They stopped, they actually stopped in Philadelphia on the way up as, the, as some of the other regiments uh, started forming that southern nucleus. Uh, the the um, uh, there's an event. I sort of uh, I fictionalized it because there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of historical reference to it. But they actually uh, they actually had the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence read to them in uh, in seven in uh, it's, uh, it's probably going to be about toward the end of July. You know, by the time they get there, maybe mid maybe third week of July when they got to Philadelphia. Um, read to them, and it was pretty stirring. It was a, it was a fairly emotional uh, event at the time for all of them. Yeah. And one thing that um, uh, I'll may I'll hold it. I'll talk about Washington and sort of the leadership style and and what uh, you know he did something that every effective executive does. So they head up. Um, uh, they had done some. There had been some preparation and fortifications in Brooklyn. Um, Washington didn't know whether uh, the British would attack in, on Manhattan or in uh, Brooklyn, and um, and he did something that um, that he never did after that, and that any experienced military leader would never do. He split his force, so he left about a third on Manhattan, about two thirds went to Brooklyn. The British didn't split their force; they attacked full force into Brooklyn. You know, so thirty thousand British troops you know, landed down in southern Long Island and started making their way. Now, the scale of this, this isn't very, you know, these are only a couple miles, you know, maybe three miles. If you've been up there, you know, from, uh, you know, from, you know, maybe here to here, it's maybe a couple miles max. So it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty concentrated area. And the actual battlefield, those of you that, that know Brooklyn, there's an area called Gowanus, okay? Um, which is where the old stone house is and some of the others. There's cemeteries in the area uh, where some of the dead are buried. Um, but that was a swamp at the time. You know, so it's mostly swamp land. So this was a pretty, pretty crummy battlefield. Um, the British came up from the south and, and 
by probably seven or eight hours into the first day of the battle, they had the American forces surrounded on the east and the south and on the west. Uh, there had been a, whether he did it at gunpoint or whether he was a traitor, just like the uh, Battle of Thermopylae, you know, where um, a, um, a traitor betrayed the Spartans and led the, and led the um, Persians around behind them through a pass. Um, a, I think he was a traitor. A traitor led Clinton's forces. He had 10,000 men, came around something called Jamaica Pass. There were only eight men guarding it. And they, not a shot was fired. They came up behind. By, the, by late in the day on the 27th, they were surrounded. The British had feigned an attack on the front to buy Clinton time to get around, so they were surrounded. So the question, you know, late, later in the day on the 27th was not, you know, should Washington consider retreating? You know, the question was whether he could retreat because it looked like it was a disaster. The only escape route was across the East River and there are 475 ships blocking that. So that's what was, that's what was facing him at the time. And so... He, um, you know, after consulting with, with his leaders, they decided they had no choice but to try to get out of there because they were going to get destroyed. And Washington knew that if they stayed and tried to battle to the death, he would be killed. If he was captured, he'd be hung, his leadership, and the Continental Army would be destroyed. So they had to at least make an attempt to get out of there or the revolution was probably over. So um, he commandeered anything that would float. This is, the, this is the closest equivalent to Dunkirk that we have in our history. Anything that could float, they commandeered. And the, only, the thing that they had going for them at the time, is, are, is anyone here familiar with the, the, the current uh, in the East River? There's a reason that the mob used to drop people in the East River. First, it's, uh, it's deep, and it also has a wicked a very wicked current. It reverses, it has a very, if you see it, if you go up there, you say, God, it looks like rapids right next to New York City. Very rapid current, um, and it's deadly if you fall into it. But one thing that it does do that's even more bizarre is it changes direction every six hours. So, um, and, and if this isn't a bad enough situation, it was storming and raining, and raining at the time. So you've got, a, you've got the worst possible uh, combat position, uh, positions um, and uh, atmosphere, and then you've got the British clogging that. But that was one of Washington's saving graces, that the, the boats could see him, but you've got this, these rivers not that wide there, so they couldn't, they couldn't with that kind of current going against them, they couldn't maneuver, the roads, they couldn't maneuver. So they could see what he was trying to do, but they couldn't maneuver to go up and get them, and trying to, and trying to um, uh, uh, shoot cannon at little canoes and rafts and everything was just not. They knew that would be ineffective. So Washington was, um, you know, he he decided to to execute this Dunkirk type of of evacuation, um, but he didn't have enough time. They weren't gonna. They really weren't gonna get out. It was taking too long. They didn't have enough. They didn't have enough boats. Um, the Maryland 400, whether they were asked or volunteered, in my book they volunteer, it's a fiction, but we don't know whether they were asked or not, they were asked to bring up the rear, and to bring the rear guard. And so you guys probably know the rest of the story, that, that uh, they're bringing up the rear guard, 
um, the um, Mordecai Giss sensed that at the center of the British war force, and it's been estimated anywhere from 12,000 men to 20,000, it just depends on what book you read, was, was staring him right there, okay? Was staring at him, and there was, a, there was a, an old stone house, there's a replica of it today, that's up there, it's not the original one, but he surmised, he saw a lot of flags and commotion around that, that stone house, and he surmised that there had to be some very, very senior military person there. And he thought it was either going to be Gage or Cornwallis. And so um, he knew that if they could, if they could make some, if they could uh, create some mischief and diversion, um, even possibly, you know, try to attack or sort of launch some kind of attack at the Stone House, that the other troops would converge around their commander and they'd, they'd um, you know, stop chasing Washington momentarily. So he did the unthinkable. You know? He turned the Maryland 400 and ordered them to, to um, attach their bayonets. They were the first and may have been the only regiment in, the, um, uh, in, in this battle, in the Continental Army, that actually had bayonets. A lot of them, they, 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 they were the first ones to fully equip with them. They'd steal them from the British, but the original Continental Army had no bayonets. And, so they, and the British didn't know they had bayonets at that point. Um, so uh, they launched a full frontal attack. Okay? He ordered them 400 young men. He had about half of them, he said, go with the retreat. He took 400 of them, full frontal attack right at the center and got within probably about from here you know, to where you're sitting, you know, maybe 10 yards away, got that close to uh, the old stone house before the British could react. And they reacted pretty quickly. They fought them back. The uh, Maryland 400 executed four frontal attacks. I mean, sorry, six frontal attacks, um, you know, getting mowed down each time. At the end of it, and you can, you know, it depends what records you look at, um, the ones that I followed, at the end, eight of them walked out, two-thirds were massacred, and the rest were either captured or wounded. And so that was it. They... They, they bought Washington the time. One, oh, one thing I forgot, and one thing that you probably read in your history, at the time that this was occurring, remember, so Washington has this, this um, uh, you know, current effect that's pushing them, that's buying, that's buying him some time that would be a little bit unnatural, so they couldn't react the way they want. It had been raining, so the East River was swollen, and so actually it slowed it down even further. Um, for the British to try to counterattack and come up and, and, uh, and intercept this, uh, this uh, evacuation. Um, at the same time that the Maryland 400 were executing their suicide mission, what they call in the history books a divine fog, those of you who read about it, fell over the battlefield and over the East River. So Washington always thought he was touched by the divine. He always did. And I'll tell you a story that I found out about him when he was in his mother's womb later. But he, he thought, and this was another piece of evidence. There, part, there, there, there's, there are evidence of, of, of these kind of divinely, divine intervention at different points in his life and in the war. But this one he clearly thought was divine intervention. He's watching through his spyglass what the Maryland 400 are doing, and that's, that's when he made... 
this comment. The Maryland 400, the battle that took place, you've seen stylized versions of it, you know, that look sort of like this, or maybe, you know, you know more structured like this. The actual battle, as it was described by especially the British um, uh, uh, the scribes, was a brawl. It was a street brawl. They both ran out of ammunition quickly. They're hitting each other. They're gouging things. They're picking up rocks. It was a street brawl. This is more like what, it, what the battle looked like. It wasn't just this Napoleonic thing that we, that we like to believe. It was pretty, it was, uh, you know, pretty obscene. But they bought Washington the time. And so, you know, this uh, divine fog, the, you know, sort of the atmospheric effects... The um, uh, what occurred with the, with the tide, and then also this unbelievable bravery of the Maryland 400 bought in time to escape. You know, if if that hadn't, if those things hadn't come together over that day, and if the Maryland 400 didn't slow them down, there's no doubt. You know, and all in in almost if every historian I've spoken to, all the military, there's no doubt that Washington would have been captured, the Continental Army would have been destroyed and the revolution most probably would have been over that day. And we'd be speaking with a British accent. <laughs> you know, probably it kind of sound kind of goofy with a Baltimore accent. But they, but, um, so that's the story of the Maryland 400, and when I stumbled upon it, I was so astonished about this, and I said, you know, this is a story that I need to bring to life in some way. You know, two of the most pivotal points in the history of America, the War of 1812, and now this, you know, young men from Maryland stood up and turned the tide and saved the country. You know, we may need to do it again soon, but that's, uh, but they, um, you know, so that's what, um, that's what encouraged me to, um, to write this story. The, um, that's what encouraged me to write the story. And, um, and I thought as I was starting to collect it, all the information, start to write the story, I said, well, I don't want to write I'm not a historian, um, since the facts are so thin here, and they contradict themselves. You know, I tried to get the best advisors here, and some of the things that were known that were known records of this were proven wrong as I was going through this. So, um, I um, I thought, well, I'm going to write a historic fiction, sort of in the style of Killer Angels, you know. But this would be on the American Revolution, and. I also wanted to, uh, since, since kids, teenagers fight all wars. They always have, they always will. So I didn't want to tell it through the eyes of military. I didn't want to tell it through the eyes of adults. I wanted to tell it through the eyes of two kids and how they chose to enlist in this and then how they, and how they uh, uh, matured into hardened warrior patriots right at the end and, um, but I was stumbling with why kids would go on a suicide mission. And I remember one day, and I have it in the forward of the book, I called up um, uh, the, um, one of the senior officers of the Army War College, and I said, Mike, I said, riddle me this. I said, you know, I was always taught that the, that the Revolutionary War was a tax, essentially a tax revolt. Taxation without representation, Boston Tea Party, and, and he goes, yeah. I said, that's what I was always taught in school. And, um, and I said, but 
but these were teenagers that executed this suicide mission. What teenager ever, ever born on the face of the earth is going to go on a suicide mission for taxes? That's a wealthy person's problem. That wasn't their problem. And he goes, Chris, you're right. He goes, the merchants, Charles Carroll, Carrollton, you know, with, uh, with the Maryland 400, the merchants, there wasn't a standing army at the time, so the merchants underwrote the militias that became the regiments. They're the ones that outfitted them, trained them. You know, obviously the, you know, the, um, uh, the burden of taxes was infuriating them and people with money. You know, it was infuriating them. But that's not what I found when I said, that's not going to motivate kids to go on a suicide mission. That's great. When you think about it logically, you say, you know, I'm not going to go. What kid's going to go? Think of your own kids. Are you going on a suicide mission for taxes? You know, so no. You know, so, you know, it just, it, it would never happen. And so I wanted to, I wanted to uncover what was the real environment there, the emotional environment? And it wasn't something that I've read in history books. It wasn't something I was taught. And so there was a confluence at the time of a number of different things occurring. You know, clearly the taxation issue, there was the, 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 the lawyers and politicians were outraged, you know, by some of the rules and the illegality of what was going on. This was the beginning of the, of the, of, um, uh, Amer what's called now American exceptionalism, you know, and um, a lot of the French philosophers were influencing and bringing some of the, the ancient Greek virtuous citizen thinking in. But the thing that I didn't know that impacted the young people more than anything, you know, these kids, you know, the kids in the Maryland 400 or any of the, or any of the regiments or militias at the time, I mean, they're going to they're gonna join because they want to make some money, they like the adventure, their friends going in, you know, they want to, they, they're tired of the British atrocities, they're, they're going to do all the kinds of things that, that, um, that young men or women may motivate them to enlist today, okay? Um, but what I found was one thing I'd never, I'd never uh, heard before, and I've been told not to use this word, but I'm going to use it because this is the way it was described to me by, by the military historians. This was as close to, my publicist says never use it, but I'm going to use it in Baltimore. The, the, um, I was told that this was as close to a religious jihad as we've ever had in the history of our company, not that country. And, and it's a... Uh, you know, it's got a bad connotation now because you think of some, you know, uh, uh, a Muslim uprising or so, you know, something like that. But at the time, I didn't realize this, that if, and it went back generations in America. When they talked about the New World, what did the, do you know what the New World meant? Yeah. Yeah, you know, so, you know, and I always said, oh, it's a New World, it's just, it's just you know, Place, you know, it's a geographic lesson is here's the old world and here's the new world, you know. And so they came across the, you know, people came across the Atlantic for whatever motivated them, you know, religious reasons, money, just to escape, whatever it might be. But the the new world was code for the New Jerusalem, and that's what they had been taught, and they had been taught that for generations, and and that was pounded into them that they were like the Israelites that that left Egypt and that they were chosen by God to do this and to create a different kind of world. The new world was something that was more profound than just a geographic location. And that's, that's the story that started coming out. And I said, well, this is, you know, uh, do you think 
do you think that this could possibly be part of what was motivating them at the end? And so I think it was all of those things, but I think that, and I've worked with the Sons of the American Revolutionists, there's no evidence up until this point of any kind of mass you know, suicide mission in America. Think of all the battles that took place in New England. There's nothing of this magnitude where young men went and sacrificed themselves for the virtue of liberty and freedom. There's nothing in our history. And so when we think back, and this is what got the army all stirred about it, um, when we think back of, in our history of all the, all the, uh, the uh, uh, men and women who have been in the military, all the men and women that, um, that invoke, um, you know, I'm doing this, um, protecting our right to be free, I, uh, you know, this is for the virtue of being um, of liberty or freedom. This was the first major battle where you, see, you saw something like that. We've seen it since then, people invoked this, but this, and they didn't say it at the time, but in some of the, in some of the um, uh, letters of some of the survivors, it's clear that they thought that they were fighting, they were chosen by God. I know that, I know that, um, that uh, George Washington felt like he was being guided by God here, that this, that they were God's children, they had, they had to do this. And so that's the story I want to tell. You know, the interesting part was, um, as I mentioned earlier, when I was going through it, so I wanted to tell the story and in this genre and in this era for the first time through the eyes of kids. You know, and so that's why I did. You know, I chose the names, they're fictional characters, I chose the names because they're old line names in, in Baltimore, Bolton, and Wright. Um, uh, and um, as I mentioned, when I was doing my initial research, I went through the pension records and found that there were African Americans who had been in this. And it's, there was no record anywhere. I just found it in the pension records. And uh, uh, I don't know how many, so I wanted to, I wanted to kind of burst that mythology that um, that's, this wasn't a diverse workforce, a diverse war force. In fact, what I found, and the Army War College educated me, the Revolutionary War had the most integrated war force of any combat force up until the Korean War. And the same thing held true in 1812. It's not recorded that way. In fact, what turned me on to it was when I read a British account of a battle, and they described you know, who they were about, and then the American account, which was really kind of flimsy. You know, and the American account really didn't account for it. And when you think back at that time where if, um, if uh, I was your slave, your property, you could send me into battle, they'd put you down on the roster as having fought, and someone else fought. Okay. And, and even to the point where if you were free African-American, you may not show up on it. So it's a, it's a longer story, and it's maybe you know, like bar talk, of what the actual composition of our war force was versus what we think it is as we go back and as we, you know, as we all celebrate our, our relatives back there. So that's the, um, that's the story of Saving Washington. It's, um, uh, it's a great story. We've had a lot of uh, buzz uh, about it. Um, uh, we've, um, we've had great support from all the historical society, societies, from teachers, the youngest fan mail I get is from seven-year-olds. You know, a lot of kids love it because these are true American heroes. You know, I think this is as close to the um, the 300 Spartans as we have in our history. And um, you know, I've promised to dedicate a portion of the proceeds 
toward a proper memorial you know, for them going forward. Uh, I was lucky enough to get the draft of this in the hands of one of HBO's top producers before it was published um, uh, earlier this year. And so we already have a film option for it from Greg Feinberg, who's a, who is a producer of Big Little Lies, Deadwood, Sharp Objects, you know, one of their most, um, one of their most, um, uh, one of their most famous producers. So not sure if it'll be a film or not, but, but um, I'm finishing up. Okay, <laughs> the, not sure if it'll be a film, but, but we've gotten that. We've got a lot of, um, uh, this is sort of an important week. Uh, we'll be up in New York later because the anniversary of this event is on, um, on Sunday. And they're going to have a big ceremony and reenactment at Greenwood Cemetery in, uh, in Brooklyn. And so there are a number of people from Maryland going up. Um, I had a real surprise about a week ago where I was, um, the book had ended up, had gotten in the hands of the, um, of the current commandant of the Maryland 175th Regiment, Maryland 107, which is a direct descendant of this. And so they've invited me to come address the regiment. It's gonna be the coolest thing in the world, I think, to go through and to try to get these kids all excited you know, about this. And so um, that's the story. Part of it takes place here when you, when you guys, uh, I've taken some liberties. I've called Federal Hill, Federal Hill. The Cat's Eye Pub is, plays a major role in it. I don't know if it existed at the time. I know it's pretty old, but it's there. You know, so there's some things that are, you know, I dropped in some landmarks. All the other, everything going up the East Coast, all of the, the spies, uh, the spy network here, all the British and the military on both sides, all that's real, all the locations of the spies. You know, so um, there are three stories in one. There's a British story, there's a spy story, and then, and then um, the story of these kids. And, um, and how this ends up. So um, it's a great story. I hope you guys, if you haven't bought it and read it, I hope you guys do. It's in, on audio uh, tapes too. It's Kindle, you know, everything imaginable. So we're starting to pick up steam and we're gonna, uh, Cindy and I are gonna spend a lot of the, the fall. We, the first part of the year was really for commercial promotion. We want to, we'd like to get it as, as um, on the reading list of every middle school and high school in the country but particularly here. The thing that I learned when we had teachers come to this, they say, Chris, you know, we don't teach Revolutionary War in middle schools anymore, and they spend a day. And it depends if there's something topical, you know, in the, uh, in the area. But they, so what I found was the same kids that can recite rhyme and verse of Hamilton are not taught about in school. And so you name the states, you know, just not, and so, um, and I thought that the various military, the various historical associations and societies, we got a great review and historical book review. Um, the Sons of the American Revolution compared the, they called it epic, compared it to Killer Angels, you know, for this era. Um, but I thought all, they would be, they would be um, upset because I took some literary license and, and you know, I conflated the, the actual battle took place over a couple of days. I've conflated some things. Some of the people weren't where I put them, but I did that to create a more dramatic story. And they said, no, they said, all history is fiction. Your account's as good as anyone else's. And, um, and as long as you can get young kids and people, you know, you know we don't know what actually, the, 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 you know, the winners write it. No one ever wrote a lot about the Battle of Brooklyn and most of it was wrong, you know. So I had the strangest, I'm gonna end this, for you with the strength and anecdote. We were, we did the launch in, um, uh, we did the book launch in um, uh, late, mid, late February, 
February. The cover was up in Times Square. We did a, we were at the, we were doing an event at the uh, 92nd Street Y, which is a big venue up in New York. And a um, guy came up to me, introduced himself as a guy that does tours of the battlefield, you know, of the Battle of New York and all the areas, and he does tours of this, and he's got a couple guys that do this with him. And um, he hadn't read the book at that point. We did a, about a, it was about a week later, we went to Francis Tavern, went to Francis Tavern, um, and did an event there, which was great. And um, uh, a lot of black um, African-American reenactors showed up for it, because they had heard the book, which was kind of cool. And then the same guy shows up, and he goes, hey, Chris, you know, you know, I read the book, it's great. And he goes, um, we're gonna use your description of the battles at Battle Hill, and we're gonna use your description on our tours now. And I said, well, Ken, I made it all up. There isn't anything. And he said, that's all right, it's better than what we had had before. You know, so, I'm, so you know, whether we like it or not, you know, hopefully over time it'll get into the zeitgeist of the, you know, of the, um, of, of, of historians, and maybe it'll be, you know, how, how the, the book is actually, how we actually think of it, in the same way that that you know, Killer Angels isn't an accurate description, but that's how when I think of when I think of uh, uh, Gettysburg, I think of the Killer Angels description. I don't think of any of the others. So that's uh, that's all I got. I don't. Um, I could read some of it for you, but I'd rather you buy the book and read it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> are there any questions? You guys are pretty yes, sir. I have, yes, um, yeah. yes. That we allow um, that you allow us to come to you to facilitate for those who are hard of hearing. Um, so if anyone has any questions, I will come to you. So I have two. Uh, first of all, when was that monument built in Prospects? Um, I think it was, I think it was um, around 1876, something so like that. So that would be kind of appropriate. It's about, it's about 100. I can't, I can't read it off of this. I can. Uh, and, and the other thing was, you, have you heard anything from David McCulley wrote that book, 1776, about what happened that year, and it covered. Yeah, he doesn't really talk a lot about this. But, but he did talk about the evacuation. He does talk, they all talk about that, and, and um, uh, Rick uh, Atkinson. Yeah, Rick Atkinson did it too. I've got his book, his latest book, and he, he covered it just briefly. But um, there, there's, there's one guy that wrote about the Maryland 400 called the Maryland Immortals. Patrick O'Donnell, that has some of it. Um, I don't think he had the battle and what happened completely accurate. If you talk to the people up there at the Brooklyn Historical Society, I think he 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 followed what had been traditionally. Everybody keeps repeating the same story, and it sort of follows them after this, you know. But not enough. But but you know, um, there just isn't much. There isn't much out there. But no, I I reached out to David McCullough when I was first. Um, starting this to see if I could get some advice, and he never responded. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, just three quick questions. You alluded earlier in your talk about a, uh, a vision, I guess, that George Washington's mother had while he was in utero. It's more than a vision. Um, I, um, I did one event with a lady who's a CBS anchor, uh, an anchor woman, and she had written a uh, book about George Washington uh, when he was younger, and um, uh, and about his love life and his girlfriends and all this sort of stuff. So, um, 
she told me, because we were comparing notes and we did a joint event together, and we were trying to tie it together, and she said, Chris, when you talk about this divine intervention, I said, that's something that was that his mother told him too. I said, what do you mean? He said, when, um, when he was in his mother's womb, the house that she was in with a couple other ladies was struck by lightning. Apparently the person next to her was killed and lightning went through her. You know, so you know, it's kind of like the natural wonder boy. You know, lightning went through and that and that she always considered him his her miracle baby because he had been touched, you know, she thought he'd been touched by God. So I that's the first time I'm accepting it as fact. I haven't, you know, you heard it from, from there, yeah. The uh, so I don't um, uh, I haven't read it anywhere, but she's done deep. She's done deep research into him and his very, very early life. So that's what I was referring to. He got struck. Uh, you know, lightning went through his mother's body when she was when he was in her womb. <laughs> and two other great questions. You mentioned a memorial. Did you want another memorial in Brooklyn or one down here? Well, the the Sons of the American Revolution. Um, uh, got the Maryland legislature to agree a couple of years ago to put one down here, but it's never happened. And so, you know, I figure that if, if we're going to, and I think that it's, you know, I think a, maybe a more demonstrative, even got the guy lined up that, that should do it. You know, one of the, like, uh, you know, he's, a, he's one of the major sculptures that does military, um, uh, more allegorical types of things. But um, uh, I'd love it if there was one here and then one in Baltimore, and then and then one up there. But this one's this one's pretty old, you know. Yeah. And you can and some of the writing you just can't even read it anymore. So it needs to be refreshed. I will tell you that they uh, about a year ago. Let me see if I have it. For about fifty or sixty years, they even had a sign up. They thought that the mayor. And if you look online, some of the articles are still old. They. Um, they, here, it was put up in 1952, okay? They thought that the Maryland 400, or at least the people that died there, were, were buried right next door. It was a tire repair shop, auto repair shop. It was, this, is, this was kind of a, it still is a pretty crummy area, Brooklyn. Okay? But the city was going to, had kind of bulldozed it down, what was on it, and they were going to build a elementary school. And they were stopped by, by the Brooklyn Historical Society. It's about a year, year and a half ago. Um, so they could undertake a proper excavation. And what they didn't find anything. They found a couple bones there. But it, wasn't any, it wasn't what they thought. So they really don't know where the Maryland 400 is, are buried. Um, because it was kind of a swamp, and as I understand in talking to the military and the um, and the historical societies in Brooklyn, when someone, when some, in, in this era, when someone was killed, they'd bury you right there. And if it was a swamp, they'd have to find out where, the terrain is completely different now, so they'd have to find dry ground, and then they weren't gonna bury someone in water. You know, so uh, they don't know where they are. And last question, uh, I just got the morning started leaving through it, I was interested, you had a recruiting session at St. Peter's Church, Catholic Church, rather than Old St. Paul's across the Charles Street. Just curious why. Um, yeah, exactly. Just it didn't um, didn't um, that's just coincidence. Yeah. yeah. The only one I I think that I think the Cat's Eye Pub was what I think the building was there at the time. I don't know what it was called. 
but a lot of the action takes place in Fells Point, you know, because Baltimore was a big merchant town. It was a pretty hot commercial area at the time, and it was actually a very, it was a very um, hot area for uh, African Americans coming up from the South because they could get work there. Yes, ma'am. Were you able to, to determine in your research whether these 400 men came from all over the state or Central Maryland? Um, well, the, the, the original, the first Maryland regiment was made up of three militias from Frederick, from Baltimore, and Annapolis. And in fact, the African Americans, at least the ones that I, there, there could have been more, I just these are people, these are African Americans that had that collected a pension 10 or 15 years afterwards. So the government's not going to pay them if they, didn't, if they weren't there. Um, at least, I don't think all three of them were from Frederick, but two were from Frederick. At least two were from Frederick. Well, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that there was a small remnant of the Maryland uh, Continentals that were taken out with Washington. One thing that's kind of interesting was those men made up the nucleus of the Continental Marylanders who went south. Washington sent them south, and they fought in Camden under Greg Gates, who ran. And they were his go-to. After that, he, they were his go-to. They the situation down there, too. So it's, yeah. it's very, very proud for yeah. many Marylanders. Yeah. yeah. They were his, his go-to group. In fact, in fact, Sterling, you know, um, finally surrendered. He led some of the attack. Gist um, got some of the guys out. Um, uh, Sterling was captured, and uh, Washington wanted him back so badly that he uh, traded, you know, more prisoners to get him back. And Sterling, you remember, you know, if you've read about some of the conspiracies to either to try to assassinate Washington later, Sterling was one of the guys that was involved in uncovering one of those. I don't think he ever grew grapes again. <laughs> yes, sir. Let me ask the unanswerable. <laughs> You're General Howe. You've just massively defeated the American army. You basically have them at your mercy. They're just behind these fortifications. You've got the greatest army in the world backing you. Why not take the final step and just massively rush and destroy them? Yeah, he was, um, he was maligned after that for not being more aggressive. So if you read the, I mean, that's, that's, um, he gave, whether he intended it or not, or whether he was just being, um, um, I mean, he was a, he, he thought that this was a, a offense to his uh, upbringing, military background, you know, um, his sense of propriety as a, as a British citizen and, and, um, and uh, officer that he was having to deal with. Uh, he was having to deal with the colonists. In fact, he had said, so did Gage. They said, oh, we don't need this many men. We can want these guys up with four or 5,000 people. We can need all this. They can't stand up against us. But he was maligned for not doing it. He was maligned for not, for not moving more aggressively and basically giving them time. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say that, uh, interestingly enough, if you had 400 uh, early uh, colonialists that came back in the way that since Mordecai led his, you think you want to go after 10,000 more of them? Well, there, there's also one thing, I forgot to mention this, and this is something, you'll see if there's uh, some uh, colorful characters in the book. Um, there's one secret weapon that the colonists had that the British were scared to death of, and so were the Hessians. 
and that was the Western Pennsylvania Longhorn, which the Western, you know, the, one of the stars of the story is uh, this from Western Maryland, Patty. But the Western Maryland uh, long rifle had this extended bore, you know. So if a, let's say a musket had a bore, that's one. This might be like that long. And they did something that none of the other muskets that they had. The muskets were were highly inaccurate. If you were standing over there, you may not even hit me, you know. So you, that's why they always said you don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes, because it was pretty inaccurate after that. Mm -hmm. So what? Um, uh, so they had these extended board, and then they rifled them inside. First time that had been done, which gave them a level of accuracy that the normal muskets and the British didn't have. So these, these uh, long riflemen from, from Western Pennsylvania and Western Maryland would sit back there and from a couple hundred yards pick off the officers and the Hessians. And they were scared to death. So at the time of this, they weren't very good in hand, in my book they're great in hand-to-hand -hand combat, but they weren't very good because you couldn't put a, you couldn't put a um, bayonet on them and they just, they, they weren't that good at hand-to-hand -hand combat, but they could shoot like, you know, all get out. And so they were, the British were completely um, perplexed by this and it scared them to death. I mean, they were picking them off. So at the same time this thing is going on, they're picking off the officers and throwing the British into chaos. So. That um, Washington observed this. What do you think happened to the long riflemen after that? He sent them up to New England. I mean, everybody had, and even the, even the British wanted to set up a rifle corps after that, but they didn't have the technology. So it was something, it was one of our secret weapons that we had at the time. And, um, uh, and that, and also the inability, we just couldn't, the, the, the British force was just too well-trained too well equipped, and we couldn't fight in that traditional sort of Napoleonic war of uh, in battles of attrition. So we didn't fight in. Washington learned his lesson after that. So we never fought. You know, we went to more guerrilla warfare. You know, after that, and we fought. We fought the rest of the revolution differently. That was a turning point for us. Yes, sir. Books, yeah, I need to sign some books. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So if the Maryland 400 came from Frederick, Baltimore, Annapolis. If there were monuments in Maryland, where do you think it should be? Well, the Sons of the American Revolution want to put it down in Annapolis, because that's where they really all came together. Um, me, if it was in Maryland, I'd put it right on top of Federal Hill. That's it, and make it make a you know huge you know huge monument you know so everybody sees it that comes here you know because um, uh, I think they they're talking about doing it around the state house but I don't think it's going to be that visible. I mean Mar the the sad part of this is it's actually the Maryland four hundred and the uh, battle uh, is really more celebrated by people in Brooklyn than um, than here. You know, it's it's less known, even though the those some of you you probably all know this that that the description of Maryland as the old line state was 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 a description of of the Maryland line. Yeah. I can tell you one funny story about Mordecai and George. Okay, Mordecai and George are out there in the Susquehannock Valley doing some survey work uh, mid-February, as most people would be doing. 
and uh, they're crossing over the Susquehannock ri uh, River when who should fall into the river but George. George falls into the river, almost drowns. Mordecai pulls him out and is responsible for keeping George alive that evening. I said, I want to see a reenactment of how Mordecai kept George warm that evening. There's a good story of Mordecai. I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> so there's your story of George saving George, I mean, of Mordecai saving George Washington. Yeah. Mordecai, I guess, in my, in my opinion, was the, was the real hero here. He's, he was the real hero. He's the one that, uh, that saved Washington twice, mm -hmm. I guess. But he was the one that was bold enough and intuitive enough, you know, to execute this outrageous, you know, funnel attack. Well, thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.